0: Welcome now to Culture at Work on the Business Radio Network presented by Crest Insurance with host Matt Nelson.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of Culture at Work in Tucson. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matt Nelson with Crest Insurance Group and this month I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Paul Melendez from University of Arizona's Eller College of Business and um you know, at, at Culture at Work in Tucson, really our mission is to you know highlight the businesses, the nonprofits, and the community members who have really stood the test of, of Tucson time. And um, you know, Paul, I, I think uh, what an apropos uh, <laughs> lead up to you because you have certainly stood the test of Tucson time. You know, you, you're a, you're a Tucson native, and you know, went to school with UVA. You're a, you're a proud Wildcat, and I know we won't hold our respective choices in universities against one another. Um, but, you know, can you tell us a little bit of what, what was your path to academia and and why, you know, you've consulted all over the world and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but why Tucson, you know, aside from the fact that you grew up here, what made you choose the U of A, what keeps you here? What, what, what about Tucson is appealing to you and, and, and what do you think that does it speak to anything in the community at a larger level?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you, Matt, for, for having me today and, um. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, native Tucsonan, both my wife and I, uh, I probably experienced something similar to a lot of other native Tucsonans. Uh, when we were in high school, we were thinking we can't get out of Tucson soon enough. For those of us that stayed for college, for university here at, at the university and, and completed, then we started thinking, oh, Tucson's Tucson, it's a pretty nice place to be, you know, but, you know, more opportunities elsewhere. And if you stayed in Tucson past that point, then you began to realize that, and you might recall this, uh, Matt, Tucson became very popular. We started to see a lot of people move to Tucson. Of course, we, we saw the, the housing boom and bust. Um, and then I think at a certain point, I just really began to fully appreciate the quality of life here. I mean, our weather is not only a draw to students, you know, internationally and nationally, but. It's something pretty special. And um, I just love the pace, you know, I love, I love the community. And, you know, for me, I, I just got really fortunate. You know, I, I, as you said earlier, I, I did my undergrad and, and my grad degree, including my PhD at the university. And, you know, typically you, you then leave, right, for, for a position elsewhere. And in this instance, I, I stayed. And, and I think I was really, really, really fortunate for that. Um, when I was a grad student, I started doing some teaching at Pima Community College, which uh, I did for years. And it was still one of the best experiences I ever had. And I think I've carried some of that uh, learning from teaching at Pima to, you know, to the university. And I think in terms of ethics education, one of the reasons why I ultimately ended up staying was because as you might recall, you know, a couple decades ago, we had a rash of corporate scandals and there were some real active calls, uh, questions about the role of business schools in preparing, you know, undergrads and MBAs to, you know, to take on leadership roles. And it was right around that time that our dean at the time, uh, Dr. Ken Smith, who was a tr- tremendous mentor to me, uh, called me in and said, "What are we going to do about this?" <laughs> and and I I had no ethics training at the time. You know, I, I did dabble in ethics because of the doctoral work i did on privatization and looking at the ethics of you know shifting services from from the public to the private sector but um you know when the dean called me in and said what are we going to do and and he suggested maybe we should develop our first business ethics course i remember saying that sounds great i said i need about a year and he said you've got about two or three months when the dean tells you that you you say okay And, and i said well you know dean smith i said we're going to do this right, we need to have small classes, you know, 20 plus. He said, you're going to do 200. You're talking to an economist, he said. We believe in economies of scale. And and so this was incredibly motivating. But, you know, one of the things that 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 not only allowed me to do was to develop the college's first business ethics course, which was now almost 20 years ago. But it allowed me also to get into a really good conversation with our dean about how what we were really trying to do and i think it's important with the title of your talk here if we're trying to change the culture right of our students a class is a piece but it's not the end-all be-all so what i ended up basically doing was was rolling out if you will a set of initiatives that i thought in total would really really help us uh to institute and, and to really maintain a culture that that would serve our students well, not only as students, but when they went into to business and industry. So I, I think, you know, I, I got I, I backed into this in some regards, but I also had some great leadership. I had some, some people that believed in me. I took some risks, to be honest with you. And, you know, I think any entrepreneur can probably identify in, in that way, even if you're in an academic institution, uh, things sometimes kind of line up. So You know, our Center for Leadership Ethics, you know, which is really one of the premier centers. I founded that many, many years ago. Uh, It's not totally uncommon to have a a Center for Leadership Ethics in a business school, but what makes us so different is we not only do research on organizational ethics, we teach students at the undergrad and graduate levels. In fact, some of our PhD students absolutely love this specialty and, and are beginning to really make some inroads uh, in their own work and, and taking on leadership roles in, in universities they go to. But we do a lot of outreach as well. You know, We do programs for high school students, college students, and even executives. And when you look at kind of our, our mission in that way, that three-legged stool, we're unlike anyone else in the world. And so our little humble Center for Leadership Ethics, which is the only center of its kind in the college or the university, uh, it's got international recognition. I mean, I get re- I have faculty from throughout the world reach out many times a year asking, how'd you do this? You know, can you provide some advice? Would you like to partner? And the answer to all those questions is yes, yes, yes. Because I think that, you know, sharing, if you will, especially when it comes to ethics education is a good thing for all of us. Right. I think at the end of the day, the more we can get people to embrace this and to really make commitments, I I think not just for business, but for society, we're going to be well served.
1: I agree with you. I, you know, it's funny. I, I think back to uh, an interview that I, I did with a longtime friend, a, a local business owner here in Tucson, but also a graduate of, of Eller, both, both undergrad and graduate, um, in the graduate program, in the MBA program. And one of the things that we contrasted a bit was our two different experiences. Um, I, I did my MBA elsewhere. He did his through through Eller here. And one of the things that we talked about, one of the things we both wished that we had spent more time paying attention to, whether it was something that was like a specific class or just part of a curriculum, um, was the kind of the importance of humility in business. And, and from that, you know, I think ethics, ethics springs from a sense of humility because you have to have this idea that, you know, you can't just create the rules as you go. Like there's a standard and and there is a necessity to kind of humble yourself in front of the in front of the standard. And that wasn't something that was, um, it was something that perhaps came up anecdotally in some of our business curriculum, but both of us said, boy, it would have been, what a, what a great thing to stress in, you know, in any sort of a leadership development program. Right. Um, But then we also talked about it, and he actually was quite complimentary about his experience and kind of this idea of a a do the right thing type of approach to Mm -hmm. business education. Um, And it sounds like that springs forth uh, uniquely here at, at the University of Arizona, at least, because of the work that you did founding the Center for Leadership Ethics. And so I guess that leads me to a question. I mean, was this something that... I know you said, you know, there were, there were scandals that were going on environmentally and, and that kind of precipitated this, um, maybe, you know, a directive from the Dean, but almost like, like a, like a voluntarily setting forth as an institution that, Hey, this is a problem that we want to correct because we feel that this is part of our space in the business community. When you look at society right now, right. And, 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 and since this month, we're really dialing in on this idea of ethics and ethical decision making there seems like a rather um, if not unique a rather apparent need for us to revisit some of these ideas about why should wh- why is ethics important what what are the varying kind of what are the modalities of ethics how do you standardize ethics so that we wind up in a situation where you know we we don't keep encountering these things on a crisis basis yeah has your experience when you contrast things internationally is this a uniquely american problem is this something you're seeing all over i mean what what in your experience has been driving this because it seems to be more prevalent now than ever
0: yeah it's it's a great point you raised mark and uh i don't believe it's a a uniquely american thing and and i'm just going to kind of rattle off a few of the most recent scandals and and i'm not going to go into great detail but For those of your listeners that pay close attention, you know, to what's happening, not just here, but abroad, some of these are going to sound very familiar, especially anyone that's in the finance or accounting fields. Um, In Germany, for example, you you probably have heard of of the whole scandal with Wirecard, right, the the payment processing company. That is to Germany uh, what Enron was to the U.S. And and what we're finding is just a a whole slew of of, of fraud, right, involving everything from, you know. From, from money laundering on up. You can go to China. In, in China, they have a very large company called Luckin. It's kind of the equivalent to, the, to our Starbucks um, that has been basically falsifying their earnings for the entire year, right? And because of different accounting and different controls, there have been some issues, but this is still a company that's, that's on our uh, stock exchange. So that, that's problematic. And then you can go to Brazil, right? Where, where I've been to, and I've been to each of these countries, but Brazil has uh, one of the largest engineering companies called Odebrecht, And uh, they have been just involved in some deep bribery scandals. So, you know, whether we're talking about a company in Germany, a company in China, or a company in Brazil, uh, you know, corporate fraud exists, you know, in all parts of the world. One thing, though, Mark, that that you, Matt, that you might find very interesting is the culture, though, of each of those countries is very different. For example, in, in Germany, you know, they look at issues a little bit different than we do. And since I kind of mentioned Enron, I'll give you a great case in point. When Enron broke here, and I'm sure you remember Enron, right? Because I have emblazoned in my memory, you know, those images of, of, the, of the auditors trying to shred those documents before the regulators came in, right? Um, in the US, because we're a very individualistic culture, our first question was, how could the CEO, right? How could the ceo have allowed this to happen and that's because we're very individualistic at the very same time and and there's been some researchers that have looked at how enron was kind of digested in in the u.s and germany when when the germans looked at this they were not looking at this from an individual standpoint they were a little more collectivistic they were asking questions like what is it about the american form of capitalism right and its institutions that could have allowed for this to happen that doesn't make us better or them worse or vice versa, but because of the different culture, it it, it may be it may be interpreted differently, it, it may be dealt with differently. But in the end, fraud is fraud, right? And and I think that's what what kind of uh, uh, that's what we're seeing in all parts of the world. And, and by the way, as you know, the 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 wire card example is just the recent, the most recent, right? We've seen Siemens. And massive corporates uh, involved in massive corporate fraud, and let's not forget diesel, you know, you know dieselgate with Volkswagen, right? So, right. so I, I don't think this is a uniquely American thing, um, but I think again the culture of the country and, and its institutions, and 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 I think that's where you find some difference.
1: So, and it sounds like I mean, it's it what we it sounds like you're describing are varying interpretations of kind of this concept of motivational blindness, right? Mm. It's like, you know, we've we've got these blind spots that perhaps are cultural. And and so when presented with a situation that's an ethical challenge, the things that incent or motivate us within our culture are kind of like the, the ad hoc justifications we use for something that ordinarily we would say is wrong if we were looking at it from the third party, whereas from the first party, we've got kind of this justification for it inbuilt. So pulling it back to Tucson, then, you know, from the international, then when you talk to students in the classroom today, um, especially with how public so many of these ethical failings are now, are there things that looking into the next generation give you hope? Are there things that concern you? What do you think from a business leaders of the future perspective are the opportunities and maybe the threats that are kind of arising in the business community?
0: Yeah, so so Matt, um, the the one of the courses I teach, which is obviously you know very germane to today today's uh, discussion, is you know ethical issues in business. But I also teach international management and, and courses on innovation. But with this business ethics course, it's a large course. You know, I have a couple hundred students, and here are some observations that I think will kind of go to your point. Um, this generation, unfortunately, has had a lot of experience seeing U.S. corporations, uh, government agencies, and even nonprofits do the wrong thing. Unfortunately, they probably have more examples of failed leadership, failed ethical leadership, than examples of demonstrated ethical leadership. So that's one thing that, that I'm very aware of. You know, they read papers, they watch the news, you know, they, they're on social media. So that's one thing. So their, their perspective can be a little bit jaded. However, here's, what's really interesting Matt, and and this is something that people that study generations have noted, the current generation has something in common with, do you remember the baby boomers? The baby boomers were very, and still are very idealistic. Their ideas about making change and being able to, to change the world. Current generation is very idealistic. So while their experience with failed leadership is very clear, they're also very idealistic, and they feel that they can make a change, that they can do things different. And it's not a huge surprise for me then when you see a lot of the current generation looking at business and seeing the power and the benefit that business can, can bring to all of us, but asking the question, is, is, is this the only form of business? And so when you think of social enterprises, which I know you're very familiar with, or you know configurations like benefit corporations, this is the generation that's gonna drive that into the future. And for some of us, you know, that are a little bit older or, or you know, as I always like to say, a little long in the tooth or a little silver haired, um, I find this to be immensely exciting. Uh, there are others that kind of get very uncomfortable because they say, hey, wait a second, I see business in in one particular way and and isn't this kind of a mission match, right? I mean, we've got nonprofits over here and government over here, but, but there are some different, you know, Entities that can be formed and, and different pursuits that businesses can take. And, and I'm seeing that. And, and, and this, to me, is exciting. I don't see it as much of a threat as much as I see it as a huge opportunity uh, for a new type of business. I have a lot of faith.
1: That's good to hear. It's exciting. I, I agree with you. I, I think um, the idea of a mission company is something that, you know, as recently as maybe 15 years ago, I mean, you might have, you know, conceptually in HBR or something like that, somebody may have described it, but you see it now where it's, you know, the company is founded with the intent of for every dollar we make here, we're going to donate a dollar here. And that's That's right. right. That's the sort of thing that just at a found at a, at a fundamental level, I, I don't have it in my memory much beyond like, again, 15 years ago or so. And, And that is exciting. It's exciting to have this in, in some way, odd pairing of what mm-hmm. would ordinarily be like a non-profit or a, or a 4 mission <laughs> yes. type of organization blended into the for-profit space that's uh, sure that is exciting
0: well so, and, and matt for for all you mentioned earlier about international right i, I can't i'm just going to share with you one of the one of the most incredible experiences i had that that really kind of caught me flat-footed I took my MBAs to Argentina, you know, probably I don't know, close to ten years ago, for not only see the country, sample the culture, but also meet some of the large U.S.-based multi-multi uh, multinational corporations that have a, a, you know a position in Argentina, but also some Argentinian companies. We got to meet Alejo, who is the co-founder of Tom Shoes. And when he engaged the students, I felt like I could have been listening to a Bill Gates when he was you know, 20 or 30 years younger. Tom Shoes is, and I'm sure you're familiar with Tom Shoes, is exactly what you did, did just described. It's a business, right? But it's got a unique kind of business model, right? They're, they're not only interested in financial performance, right? They're also interested in kind of their social performance, right, and, and the things that they feel that they can do and change you know, at a global level. And so even in a country like Argentina, which, which has its challenges, we were still able to find this, this individual that was part of this incredible experiment that we hadn't seen to that point, right? You wanna talk about a real disruptor in the marketplace. Tom Shoes was, in my opinion, one of the very, very best examples we can point to. But from a generational standpoint, I think it kind of gets to the appeal and the promise that some of these businesses can hold for the current generations that we're seeing at, at the university.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, and then actually, so you had said something that really stuck out to me, which was the the difference in culture um, internationally, right across across cultures, but but really how that correlates to ethics. And then like we were just talking about how generationally um, ethics can vary somewhat. And so I, I really think that kind of brings us to your book, Right. So, so you wrote a book in 2019, Moral Problems in Management An Objective Model of Analysis. Right. And so textbook. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what you're kind of speaking to and, and correct me if I misinterpreted it, but you're kind of speaking to a sort of an instruction manual for when you're encountering an ethical quandary where maybe people are bringing different cultural tales into it or, or different generational interpretations into it to try and get everybody's lenses to kind of sync up yeah. and, and use a systematic approach to dissect a, a complicated situation, right? As, as most all ethical, the easy ethical situations, you know, I think pretty much everybody can can, can suss out, but, but when you get right. into the things that are tangled, that's where all of a sudden you know, interpretation matters. So why did you write the book? I mean, certainly you could have just grabbed a book for a class or something like that. What made you decide to author it? What did you see as the need?
0: Yeah, great, great, uh, great, great question. Um, So here's what I realized after many, many years of kind of being in this space. You know, we make decisions every day, multiple times a day, right? We don't even think about it. And, And in there, we could almost have a separate conversation on, the challenges of unconscious bias, right? But we make many, many decisions. Most of our decisions, Matt, I think you would agree in a business sense, still, if we're not careful, are based on what we think and feel, right? They're very sub- they're very subjective, right? And, and that's part of being human, we say, right? But the problem is how you think and feel about matters may be totally different than how I think and feel or different than from how Mark may think or feel. And so that can be a real challenge. So what I sought to do was to develop a model, right, that would not be subjective but more objective. And so what I settled in on was that there are some there are some criterion, right? What I call stakeholder interests, which are based on inclusive considerations, uh, economic outcomes, which is based on impersonal market forces, uh, legal requirements, which is based on. Um, um, impartial you know, social and political processes, and then of course ethics, which are based on these indelible universal principles. And, and my argument has been that if you're a manager or a leader of a firm, and it's not if it's when you are confronted with an ethical dilemma, instead of deviating to what you think and feel and the challenges that follow, if you can equip yourself with, a, with an objective model of analysis that you can get everyone for the most part to buy into and say, yeah, it's important to consider the stakeholders, the economic, the legal, and the ethical considerations, that's gonna yield, in my opinion, potentially a resolution that's gonna be more comprehensive, but also much more likely to engender the support of others that you're gonna need to, to help you address the issue. And, and so that was the inspiration really for for the text. I had been teaching this, but I really wanted to find a way also to memorialize it and to kind of run a red thread through not only what I'm teaching, but also what the students are studying. Mm -hmm. And so that was really kind of the the impetus behind this. And the one thing I know that you can identify, that you can relate to and, and Mark can as well, is that it doesn't matter if you're in a public or private company. I would even argue, if you're a business government or nonprofit, And I know you've had all those different professionals from all those different sectors come in. Ultimately, it's a balancing act. When you have an ethical dilemma, it it, it challenges the the need for you to balance your financial and social performance, right? Financial performance, we can measure in terms of, of, you know, kind of your revenues and your costs and your profits. Social performance is a little more difficult to measure, but, but you can still determine in terms of like overall stakeholder satisfaction my sense is that y- you you can't be thinking of it today as an either or i'm either going to focus on financial performance or social my sense is you have to do both and you have to do both financial and social and you got to be open to the evolution of additional requirements or demands that you're going to have to face you know by external stakeholders so that at a kind of a high level was kind of the thinking behind the text and ultimately uh, my goal was to equip managers and leaders with a tool that when used can really, really help, you know, you know um, help you break through with identifying ethical dilemmas and finding a solution.
1: Well, so I want to dive into the, to the, to the model itself, and we've got a couple of case studies we can talk about, but as we're at the bottom of the hour, I do want to take a quick second. Um, so for those of you who are just joining us, this is Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group. Uh, As the largest locally owned and operated insurance brokerage in southern Arizona and headquartered right here in Tucson, um, and one of the top 100 insurance agencies in the United States, Crest is your hometown broker to assist with commercial insurance, workers compensation, and employee health insurance plans. I'm your host Matt Nelson uh, of Crest Insurance, and now back to our conversation with Dr. Paul Melendez from the University of Arizona's Eller College of Business. Um, So Paul, let's dive into this uh, ethical decision-making model, because the two questions that jump right off the page to me um, as we talk about how these situations get so tangled. One is, all right, well, regardless of the situation, there have to be some things that are common root causes of unethical Mm -hmm. behavior, right? And some of those are probably pretty simple to to suss out, right? They're probably incentive-based. Right, where it's like, if I make this unethical decision, I personally benefit. Um, My suspicion is that it's perhaps a bit more complicated than that because, um, as you identified earlier, these large ethical failings involve more than just one person. Yeah, right. And and so, when you involve more than just one person, the idea that just, well, one person's going to make money, in my mind, the argument starts to kind of fall apart, right. So what, when you have done your analysis and you've sat down and looked at this over the years, what are you seeing as kind of the common root causes for unethical behavior?
0: Yeah. So the, the accounting profession, uh, specifically uh, forensic, uh, forensic auditing has given us a great gift. And, and that is to me kind of the three drivers behind, you know, the root causes of all kind of unethical behavior. And, I, Matt, I know that you and I have had conversations, and, and boy, we could probably spend uh, three hours just on this one, but for, for, for our audience, every financial crime has these three drivers. There's motivation, opportunity, and rationalization, right? Motivation's not bad. It's just a pressure or a need for something. Opportunity, the way I like to describe it, is the door that kind of meets that motivation, now, when we get to rationalization, that's where it gets to be a little bit different, right? This is when we're about to do something that we know is on the margins, but we tell ourselves, right? You know, everyone else is doing it, right? It, I'm doing this because things are so unfair, or or that you know, I'm not really hurting everyone. When all three of those come together, you have in, in effect the perfect storm, and you can almost guarantee that you're gonna have problems. And I see this on campus with both undergrad and grad students. Right, they're highly motivated to earn good grades. They get opportunities to cut corners, right? Whether it's turning in a paper from a paper mill or cheating on an exam, and they can rationalize it saying, "Hey, you know what? Uh, everyone else is doing it." Right. It doesn't change the fact that it's still wrong. And guess what? That also applies to the business community, right? And and businesses. And I know that in in the past. Um, you have had Aaron Bean, who used to be the the CFO of HealthSouth. I actually did back when it was kind of a new thing, a YouTube interview where I asked him about motivation, opportunity, and rationalization. And he gave it to me straight, right? His motivation was to meet quarterly earnings. His opportunity as a CFO was, was, I was thinking there was going to be some grandiose mark to market accounting like Enron. He said, no, you're just accelerating recognition of revenues and you're just deferring the, the recognition of expenses. His rationalization was incredible though. Basically, he said, I was under enormous pressure from the CEO at the time, Richard Scruci. Um, There were a lot of other CEOs at the time that were doing this practice, and there is some truth to that, because we can look back and see other companies engaging in that type of fraud. But the other one that was fascinating, Matt, was that he said, look, uh, all of us lived in the small community, w- which was the headquarters for, for HealthSup. I grew up with these people. Our kids went to school together. I would run into them at the supermarket or, or church. If I had done what a CFO should do, which was good old fashioned belt tightening, I would have had to have laid people off. And these are just hardworking people and I couldn't bring, that, bring myself to do that. So you asked the question and, and I think that, that at the end of the day, it's when those three drivers or those three factors are all working in unison that, that you, can, you can almost guarantee that you're gonna have problems.
1: So, and, and that um, coming from an aviation background, that Swiss cheese model of accident analysis, right? When the, when the holes all line up, that's when the failure happens. Yeah. So that kind of calls into question, like what should our limiting factors be then? Where, where do we get to black and white? Is it, you know, if something is legal, for example, mm-hmm. placing all of the onus on the regulators, right? Where you say, mm-hmm. hey, look, Gap standards are the the, the firewall that's going to keep these types of financial games from being able to occur. We're going to remove the opportunity because we're going to say these standards are the way that everything has to happen. And, and mm-hmm. you know as well as I do that um, the second you put together a standard, you've got 100 people who are really smart looking at that standard and, and finding ways to poke at it and, and find ways around the edges. Um, so, I mean, can we, can, can we as a society pass that ethical... Responsibility that ethical firewalling off to regulators, or or do you feel that that is something? And I suspect I know the answer, but but uh-huh. do you think that that's something that's sustainable, or are there other things that should be guiding us? Because to your point, no. His rationalization was, I'm taking care of just a different type of stakeholder. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm failing my shareholders with and and my investors with inaccurate financial reports, but I'm doing so to benefit another group mm-hmm. of shareholders. So. I guess can you blend those two ideas into into yeah. what you think about the situation?
0: Well, I'll, I'll give it my best. Uh, my, I'll give you. I'll give it my best shot. So here's what's really interesting about and, and you might recall earlier, Matt, when I described the, the objective model analysis. One of the key considerations is legal requirements, mm-hmm. and you know. For all of our imperfections, I'm still incredibly bullish on, on America and, and our ability to, to kind of rise to the occasion. With that being said, we've got challenges, right? Here's what I've noticed historically, and tell me if you agree. We typically have to have a market failure in order for people to get hurt, you know, God forbid die, or, or get so incensed that they then begin to put enormous pressure on our elected officials which then begin the long, arduous process of, of having new laws and regulations, right? And and we've seen this play out, right? It, it doesn't matter if it's a pharmaceutical company, uh, an aviation company, or, you know, a, a, an extraction company. The problem is, is that it's always reactionary, okay? And And, and, and that can be a concern. And the other thing is, our laws are still, there, there can be problems with our laws in terms of our norms. So this is something that, that I know you're aware of that I always like to point out because we change. It may take time, but we change. You know, at one time in American history, it was legal to own slaves. At one time in American history, it was legal to deny women the right to vote, right? At one time in American history, we could separate kids from, you know, by schools, you know, through segregation based on the color of skin. Now, when I share this with people today, we all say, wow, that's, yeah, but that's in the past. And I also say, well, that was also legal at the time. So we also have to be aware that sometimes there can be a lag, right, between our laws and kind of our morals and our standards. So look, my sense is that laws represent kind of a minimal base, a minimal standard that we can all accept. And that's important. But to me, ethics is about so much more, right? Um, there's nothing legally that says that Matt needs to donate, right? That's that's a choice. Now, you know, now if you decide that you want to donate to a charitable, you know, cause, I would say that's a great, great thing, right? I mean, there's lots of benefits that go around. But I think law set kind of a minimal standard, but I think that ethically, there's a lot of space. There's more that we can do and and i think we had talked a little bit about this i get asked this question time and time again you know what's the difference between morals and ethics you know they, they seem to be kind of the same and, and i say well good point right you know morals are kind of standards of behavior and ethics are our systems of belief and they say well that's a really simple way of looking at them and i said yeah but they're they're a little bit different when you have to apply them and they said well, give me an example i said okay let me give you an example Let's say that, you know, this weekend, Matt, I, I, I'm walking down University Boulevard and I see you at Frog and Perkin, for example, and you're smoking a cigarette. And I say, Matt, that's immoral. And you say, what are you talking about? You know, the whole act of you, you, you behaving in the way that you're smoking. You say, well, what's wrong? What's immoral about that? It, because it goes against my ethics. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, I, I don't think that you should do anything that could harm you or other people, right? That's how morals and ethics can converge, right? They, they are different, but they're also related. And so, um, you know, since you asked the question about law, which is also connected to morality and ethics, I thought I'd try to kind of pull those together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I think it creates a, an interesting object lesson that that actually ties to the to, to a case study that I want to talk to you about, because it's one that, that I've had the privilege of hearing you dissect in the past, mm-hmm. because, you know, I could come from my own ethics and say, well, all right, but I'm smoking a cigarette, and that's something that you know, I I have agency, and I've decided that it's not inconsistent with my ethical mm-hmm. um, view of the world that I could do something that perhaps is self harming, right? Because that's right. It's it's myself that I'm harming. So so when we so when we and for the for the matter, I don't smoke, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but but you could play you could play devil's advocate, right? So sure. so let's take this case study, and this is um, a case that I know you know you've you and I have talked about a couple of times, and it's such a fascinating object lesson, and and. Again, being somebody with an aviation background, um, I find it really interesting, and that is this this contemporary example of the Boeing 737 Max, right, and the, and the couple of crashes that really stemmed from. Um, and and if I miss any of this, please correct me. But but essentially, you know, the key ethical issue that seems to spring forth here is you had the Boeing 737, which is a, an airframe that had a, a great safety record it's a company that has a a great safety record it's kind of one of those american titan companies right it's like the boeing corporation um and so what boeing did um, was they used this this airframe which was an approved airframe made some changes to it so that they could sell some new air some new airplanes and in doing so, part of those changes were they upgraded the avionics and control systems. And for those who are listening who are not um, aviation folk, um, the systems in issue were called the MCAS system, which is uh, it's a software system that detects when the airplane is in a in a state of flight where it's going to stall and it's going to lose its aerodynamic profile. And so the system is designed that when that stall happens, which is generally, generally the air, airplane is losing forward speed, the nose is up, it loses lift. And so the MCAS system kicks in and causes the airplane to nose down and regain controlled flight, right? Um, so they, they put this new software in there, but what they didn't want to do was they didn't want to have to go through the process of recertifying a whole new airframe. And and really more importantly, because it would have been an obstacle to selling these aircraft, they didn't want to create this extended training pipeline for pilots that would be required when you make a new, like if you were to roll out an entirely new airplane, you'd have a, this long training pipeline for pilots and simulators and things like that. And that becomes unappetizing for for an you know, for for uh, for an airline because they've got this downtime in addition to the capital cost of buying the planes. Is that a fair synopsis of the situation?
0: Uh, it's it's more than fair. I gave you, if I could give you a grade, I'd give you an A, Matt. That's,
1: that's <laughs> exceptional. Yes. Well, thank you. So, so a, and as anybody who watched the news saw the the really tragic consequences of this is that there were a couple of um, deadly, extremely deadly crashes with this airframe where the. Autopilot commanded the airplane uh, into the ground. Essentially, the mm-hmm. the pilots became disoriented because there was a missing gauge in the uh, you know in in the in the dashboard um, that would have told them that what was happening wasn't really happening. They got disoriented. The planes crashed into the ground, and you know lots of people lost their lives. And then Boeing became embroiled in this massive ethical scandal that involved failings of government regulators, it involved failings of their engineers and subsequent tell-alls, and then there's the executives and the profit motives. So when you look at that situation and your ethical framework for decision-making, your model for ethical decision-making, I'm sure there are a hundred things that we could point to um, as to why all of the holes lined up on the Swiss cheese. The two that jump off the page to me that seem most puzzling, because the executives wanting to sell more airframes makes sense, right? That that part I can logically impute a, a rationalization. For it. Yeah. Um, the part that I struggle with are the failure of the engineers to speak out when hmm. they saw something that was a flight critical problem. Yeah. And the other part that really seems very strange to me is the willingness of regulators to go along with this kind of ad hoc rationalization of these systems don't seem like major upgrades. So if I've missed anything outside of those two, let me know. But, but what are your thoughts as you look at kind of those, because I think those pretty clearly poke holes in this idea that we can just hold one person accountable, right? This failure happened at multiple levels.
0: Yeah. And, and back to your kind of theme, right? With culture, right? It's Boeing has cultures, right? I'm sure if you work for Boeing, you would say, you know, if you're in the HQ, there's a culture, but if you're out at one of the manufacturing facilities, you know, yeah, there's that culture, but there's another culture, but, you know, Matt, tell me if you agree, right? This like so many other, you know, what I like to call on the Richter scale, eight or nine events with, you know, on the Richter scale, which are massive, right? They, they, they it can not only be a matter of people getting hurt or lives being lost, it could be wholesale industries or economies. It can really be shaken. Um, it's, we're still learning, right? They're, it's still evolving, but the, to your first point about the engineers, I really, really, really wonder, and, and I wonder at what point we find out if we do, what did the engineers do, right? Because we've seen in, in American history, right, this is one of the other cool things about what I get to do is uh, I get to approach it from a historical perspective, you know, for some of the listeners, they're gonna say, wow, now he's really reaching back. But you remember the Ford Pinto case with the- I do. The, 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 the exploding, you know- uh, Yeah, the exploding Ford gas tank? tank, yep. That's right. Those engineers called it out and they came up with a really cost effective solution. The problem was Ford had done a benefit cost analysis and said, okay, look, the retrofit is gonna cost this much if we don't do anything and we still know that we could have some property damage, people could get hurt and people might die is this amount. Guess what they did? They went and they chose not to do anything. NASA, right? Think about the Challenger and and those engineers that called out the problem with the O-ring, right? That, hey, look, you know, there's a potential flaw, right? And and if it gets cold enough, I didn't even realize it could freeze, quite frankly, in Cape Canaveral. I felt really ignorant. I thought, can it really freeze (laughs) in Florida? (laughs) But I I don't mean to make light of it, but, but they called this out. They brought it to the attention of management. What did management do? you know, very similar to Fort Pinto. I don't know if they engaged in the benefit costs. I think in that instance, there was so much pressure, right? If you recall with the Challenger, there were hopes about privatizing, you know, uh, you know space flight. And NASA had had a, a few losses and setbacks. They really had had a, a series of de- delays so they needed to make that work. I wonder, Matt, you know, if we really, really, really got deep into the organization, what did those engineers know? Who did they tell? What did they propose? And what happened with that? You know, that's, that's a question that, that I, I, I think about as well. I wish I had more answers, you know, but, but I think that that is going to, that's going to give us, that's going to glean interesting insights into the culture of a company that you mentioned the you know, regulators, right? The FAA look, regulation is really, um, I'm fascinated with regulation, you know, I think you, I may have shared with you that when I did my, my doctoral work, I, I actually did it on privatization, right? So let's take a hard look at, at different services that are provided and, you know, is the, is the private sector a, a better place for this, right? And, and to be honest with you, regulation is one of those topics that, that can either get people cheering or, or get people jeering, right? If, for example, you and I go out and eat dinner and we get sick, and it's because we find out that you know there has been no oversight or, or regulation of how the, the restaurant is, you know, preparing or, or sourcing certain types of chicken, you and I are going to be screaming at the top of the lungs. Where the hell is the regulation, right? We need regulation. We need food safety, right? Well, on the same token, you know, if we get that regulation. And that adds to costs, right? Which then gets passed on to us, and we start complaining, saying, "Hey, look, businesses should be able to do this on their own. They, it's in their own self-interest, right? You know, regulation makes the markets less efficient, right? And and, and makes things more expensive. You know, the, the, with the U.S. mail, right? Postal service, right? When, when the mail person brings your mail, right? Maybe you get excited because it's a check, maybe a stimulus check. <laughs> maybe you get really disappointed when it's your taxes, right? Or, or I mean. We were very, very fickle, but with the FAA, specifically in the case with the Boeing 737 Max, there's a lot, there was a lot going on at that time. For one thing, I know, in fairness to the FAA, their budget and their manpower, if you will, had been shrunk. Because Boeing was Boeing, right? I mean, and it was just the darling of the aviation industry, those engineers. You know we're quite frankly dawning also as FAA regulators. They were trusted to the extent that they had not only the technical expertise but the vested interest to make sure that these systems were safe. And so I think there was a lot of lax regulation but like anything else like you said Matt I think that there are some underlying causes for that right which go beyond just the FAA. These are kind of bigger kind of philosophical discussions that we need to have that we're probably having now with, with, you know, changes of administrations of the role of government, right? And so those two points that you've called out, I think are really, really, really fascinating. And, and in there lies some of the explanation, but they're explanations, right? You, you don't have a catastrophe of this magnitude with, with a single actor, like you said, right? There's lots of failures that occurred at different points.
1: When it, it kind of seems like as a leader, because the other thing that, um, you know, and, and for those listening, I'm kind of cheating because I've, I've had to, the opportunity to listen to this presentation before, but as, an, as as a leader at, let's say, Boeing, right, it's it's almost incumbent upon you by virtue of your role, like you are in a lot of ways, your job is to go around and search for those motivational blind spots, right, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in areas where because one of the explanations that i heard was well you know from from an executive level we were trying to move aircraft um and at the executive level we didn't know that this was going to be a problem we didn't think that a pilot would get disoriented When the MCAS system kicked in, because they've been flying 737s for years, and as such, that's the justification that we provided to the FAA as to why this wasn't, uh, you know, a major change. And of course, in my mind, the immediate question, and this just comes from somebody who, you know, again, I was a crew chief in the the, uh, aviation crew chief in the army for for nine years. Is, you know, anything that you don't know, it's incumbent upon you to ask, right? So it's like were the pilots consulted as stakeholders mm. in this?
0: Yeah, and I think there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that because, as you know, Matt, because of your experience, you know, putting pilots into flight simulators, it's fun. It's also very expensive. And one of the things that Boeing did with its airline carriers was make a lot of promises about how the 737 MAX was gonna be easy peasy, right? It's just like the 737, except it's just bigger and faster and more fuel efficient. And, and here's the upside, right? No extra training. I think there have been pilots that have said, and when were you gonna tell us about this? And, and not only that, Matt, but I, I think you would agree. It, it also became clear that there were some, how shall I say, uh, upselling that could have been done by Boeing to make sure that there were some systems that you could purchase as part of the 737 Max, that would have essentially provided the the assurances, the, the, the security that you need to, to, to you know, with, with the AO, AOA, right? That that could have that could have alleviated all of this. So um, that is that that's hugely problematic. You know, Matt, the, the other thing that I wanted to share with you that I think is a real serious discussion that gets to governance. If you recall as the as this whole scandal unfolded and, and the CEO that was in charge at the time, at some point he was stripped of an interesting dual role that he had. Do you remember? He was yes, CEO and, and chair of the board of directors. Oh, that's okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so for me, Matt, the other thing that really, really, really kind of smacks of a real serious discussion about governance is is that really the best thing to do, right? Because if you think about it, I don't want to rationalize for the CEO and the chair of the board, but you know, for someone like me, that's more of a purist, I see the CEO having responsibilities for the day to day, right? And I've served on boards just like you have, you know, both corporate and nonprofit, et cetera. And then you have the the, the, the board of directors and, and that board of directors, depending on configurations, have one employee, it's usually the CEO and I think it kind of begs the question, you know, with a company as large as Bollywood's with with its tradition and its history and its success that you you cited, was that a little bit much for one person? I mean, where were the other directors, right? What, what, What were the shareholders saying? Because this was something that probably in my humble opinion should have been really seriously evaluated even before any of this transpired, just for the sheer fact that, that, you know, there's alternative configurations and there's good reasons why you may want to have your CEO focus on the day-to-day and let your board of directors and your chair focus on that kind of high level 30,000 foot, you know, strategic oversight, you know, of of the company and where it's going. That in and of itself, I think also uh, plays into part of the, the problem that we saw with Boeing.
1: It's interesting. It's, you know, in, in a financial circle, I mean, the topic of dual control is, you know, I mean, it's like that's that's finance one oh one, right? But in a leadership circle, there's, you know, there's it's a lot more permissive that you could have one person who has control of both levers, the oversight level and uh, lever and the execution lever. At, that's right. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's like so many rules that where the where the failure happened, you know, they're written in tragedy when all of a sudden you look at that and you say, well, obviously having control of both of those levers was a bad idea. We should have had somebody else looking at it, and, and yet we find ourselves in similar situations.
0: <laughs> so, well, and, so and, often, and Matt, Matt, you know, I mean, maybe this is a topic for another podcast at some point, but, you know, it kind of begs the question, right? I mean, I don't want to change gears here, but I think we're all familiar, familiar with what happened with Theranos, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that, and I wrote a case on Theranos, which we can talk about at some other point, even if you've watched the documentary, right? Um, when you looked at the board of directors for Theranos, the one thing that jumped out at me was you had too much of the same. You had too many former government officials or, or high-level, high-ranking military officials. And this is a this is a high-tech scientific... Company, right? That that's in the deal, that's in the business of medicine. And what jumped out at me was that board of directors didn't seem to be representative. And I'm not talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has its own merits. I'm talking about having a board that is has such a composition that has the right people, right, with the right skill sets. It was it was missing. And and I have to wonder, right, if we were to look a little bit more carefully at Boeing or other companies from a governance standpoint, not just you know separating the roles of the chair and the CEO, but also who's on that board, right? Because we might sit here and say, and, and Matt, you might say, well, let's get all pilots there, right? For good reason, right? And I might come back and say, let's get all engineers there, right? And, and for good reason, we might agree that those are two both important parts. But I'll tell you what, for Boeing being what it is, that board should look, should have a composition of a lot of different interests perspectives, generations, backgrounds, because that's where the good stuff happens, right? You need those contrarians. You need those people at the end of the day that are not being gadflies for the sake of being provocative. But, you know, honestly, if I'm not an engineer, asking you as an engineer point blank, is this safe? Like, explain this to me in non-scientific terms, right? And, and you need those types of really healthy types of, of discourse and and conversations for the good of the company, right? For the good of its shareholders and the broader stakeholders.
1: So as we, one of the things I always try to do, um, you know, as we get to where we've got about five minutes, five minutes left or so, for people who are listening, you know, here in Tucson and they're running their business, right? Or they're running their nonprofit, um, or maybe they're serving on a board. I I always try to kind of bring it home with this idea, with a couple of tangible things that that are related to the high-level things we've been discussing. And, you know, three questions kind of jump out based on the conversation we've had. Uh, You know, one, and, and I think, again, I might already know the answer based on what you've said thus far, but, you know, if I'm hiring people, Um, and I'm trying to develop them. Is it possible to teach a person how to be ethical? Do I have to just get lucky and, and, and just be really good at hiring, right? Which is a challenge in and of itself. Or do you think as a business owner, perhaps the greatest use of my effort is to try and hire, right? Try and have a coherent ethics, but really build my company out like a Henry Ford model where I'm engineering the process to address perhaps the shortcomings that people might individually encounter and that you know, board construction and things like that fall into that. If, if you were running Paul Melendez Incorporated, mm-hmm. what would that look like? Where would you choose to focus your efforts?
0: So at the end of the day, I'm an educator and I, I firmly believe that, that in the power of, of teaching and learning. So I'll take a page out of aristotle's book right because aristotle you know ha- had this kind of debate in athenian society like over 2500 years ago and, and his belief was that ethics was a matter of knowing right for wrong and that was something that you could be taught right and and we hope that that teaching begins early on you know with with the family unit and i know family can mean different things today but you know at the end at the end of the day that's where you get those the People are not born, and I think you would agree, Matt, they're not born with values or ethics or morals, right? You learn those, and you learn those from your family, or you don't. But I believe that from an organizational standpoint, and this maybe gets to your second point, it's really important for organizations, big or small, public or private, to have those values clear when people know what you stand for. And when you are very clear in terms of what you believe in, how you're going to purport yourself, and 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 your core essence of who you are. And those are kind of those have ethical overtones, that's very, very powerful. And, and it signals who you are, and, and it gives the person who's going to work for you the opportunity to decide if that's what, what they want, if they're compatible. And, and from a leadership standpoint, I think it's really simple. I think. Leaders have to not only focus on telling people what they have to do, right? We can get really stressed and say, you know, Matt, I need you to do this and, and don't ask me why. Actually, I think the best leadership is a combination of, of not only telling people what they have to do, but why. The why to me is that critical piece that misses sometimes. If you tell, if I tell you what you have to do, but why you have to do it, now you understand where you are in the supply chain and now you have a, di- a different appreciation. But if I also tell you why you're going to do it and, and, and how I expect you to do it, right, in an above-deck way, in a way that doesn't cut corners, that sets a very powerful tone. Had those conversations happened, Matt, you know, with a company, go, let's come back to American business, right, company like Wells Fargo, right, all these people that worked for the company that had really ambitious targets and goals and, and you know, here's what you need to accomplish, had the same concern been given to telling them, why it's important to do it the right way, that you don't want to cut corners. We don't want to lose customers. We don't want to do harm. We certainly don't want to get into the crosshairs of of Congress or federal regulators. Things could have been very different. So the other thing is, you know, from a leadership standpoint, focusing on the what and the why, making sure that your values are very clear and and having this inherent belief that people can learn ethics. And and sometimes you need to reteach and you need to reorient. So I hope that answered your, your questions.
1: It does. Thank you. And, and um, you know, with that, uh, the one thing I do want to invite people to do is if uh, if you want to uh, see Paul's model, um, the book is Moral Problems in Management An Objective Model of Analysis. Um, you know, Paul, I, one of the things you talked about was at the university. Uh, you know, you've been extremely generous in my experience going out and sharing your expertise with various organizations around the city um, you know, if somebody, a business owner or something is listening right now and they wanted to learn more about the center, um, you know, maybe get involved, how would they best do that? How do they best oh. find you and find your staff?
0: Uh, reach out to me. I will share my email. Um, let me tell you, I would love nothing more than to get, uh, some, some, uh, response. I love to bring, bring business professionals into the classroom to share their experiences I love to tap into their experiences, judges with competitions. I love to include them with kind of high level thinking. Our next uh, executive ethics symposium this summer, Matt, which I'm gonna extend you and and Mark and and all of your podcast participants in CREST, I'm gonna extend you an invitation. We're gonna be looking at the ethics of telecommuting or remote work. Like what we have now been realizing, right? How do you maintain a culture that's now gone, you know, remote, that was predicated on in-person. How do you motivate people, right? To come back to work, right? <laughs> instead of doing it from home, you know, h- how do you measure performance, right? In, in this remote environment, maybe Mark is thriving and you're struggling. And, and what does that mean when we come back in person? If we do, if, if it's ever gonna be the, the same, right? So I wanna also share with you that we have, Invitations, we'd like to extend your, your, your listeners to, to be part of as part of our center's mission. Opportunities to come in and engage our undergrad students, you know, as, as judges and share experience. We're just coming to the classroom and, and share with us what you what you know. That's Students love that. And they can listen to me all day. They don't have much of a choice, right? But when I can get a, a guest speaker or somebody that's been in business to, to share with them what they've learned, it, it's, it's a great thing for all of us because we all end up benefiting because these are our future business leaders. So... That's an open invitation on all three fronts.
1: Well, thank you very much, Paul. Um, so for all of you who've been listening, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, uh, to join us for another month uh, here at Culture at Work in Tucson presented by Crest Insurance. Dr. Melendez, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Um, and thank you to Tucson Business Radio X and, uh, and my producer, Mark Bishop, who does a fantastic job. Um, this is Matt Nelson at Culture at Work in Tucson. We'll catch you next month. Have a great day, everybody.
0: Join Matt for another interesting Culture at Work podcast right here on TucsonBusinessRadioX.com.